Welcome to the Generations Church Podcast. This is Brian Nugent, and I'm the pastor at Generations Church. Thanks for listening today. We have a guest speaker with us, and we hope that this message is an encouragement and blessing to your life. For more information about Generations Church and its ministries, check out our webpage at gctlh.org or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and Twitter. Well, we're very honored to have Dr. Mark Rutland uh, with us this morning. Uh, what a full life he has lived. Not lived like past tense. He is living. Let me just <laughs> phrase it that way. Uh, <clears throat> as a missionary uh, on staff at Mount Perrin Church of God with Dr. Paul Walker, if you're familiar uh, with that. He was the pastor at Calvary Assembly in Orlando, Florida. He was the president of Southeastern University for a decade or so, the president of Oral Roberts University uh, for several years, and uh, now he uh, preaches across the nation on weekends serving churches like us, but also uh, he is training pastors through his uh, National Institute of Christian Leadership. Uh, it's a pastor's cohort. I have been honored uh, to be in that cohort for this this uh, 2022 year. I have another class coming up in a few weeks. I am his favorite student. I just want to say that. I am sure. I am sure. I sit on the front row, not to impress, but I'm desperate, just desperate for any crumb that I can get uh, from Dr. Rutland. And, uh, but we are glad to have him. He's got his grandson, Michael, with us this morning. We enjoyed his ministry when he was with us last year. Would you make welcome to Generations Church our friend, Dr. Mark Rutland. Thank, thank you, Pastor. Good morning, everyone. I will embarrass my grandson by asking him to stand. This is my grandson, Michael Starr. He's, he's, a, cadet, he's a cadet at uh, Southern Prep Military School up in Alabama, and so I stopped on the way and picked him up and brought him with me. And I wanted him to meet you, and it gave me a chance, an excuse to spend the weekend with my grandson, of whom I'm proud. He's doing a great job. He uh, spent some time this morning speaking with your, one of your worship leaders about the Marines. He wants to be a Marine, and he's very excited about it. His mother is not all that excited about it. <laughs> well, it's great to be here. I... Uh, I uh, have lived most of my life in the, in the United States, uh, but I was actually born in the Republic of Texas, and <laughs> and I just want to say, my I know it's been an up and down football season. Some of you have had disappointments and all that. I won't go into that, but my season, my season was made. Texas beat Oklahoma like a drum yesterday. <laughs> I mean, we didn't just beat them, we kicked them, we beat them badly. <laughs> so the Red River Shootout is actually the national championship. Doesn't matter what any of these lesser teams like Alabama and Georgia do. <laughs> we beat Oklahoma. I just want to say, God is in his heaven. Well, I was interested in, uh, I felt particularly moved, and in fact, yesterday I mentioned to Pastor that I want to preach today on dreams, and I'd like to pray over people's dreams, um, the church, the staff dreams, uh, 
all of us, but especially young people. And then Brad and Melissa came up and I thought, well, the, the Lord's timing is perfect. So if you have your Bibles this morning, if you'll take those and turn, if you will, to the book of Genesis, the book of Genesis chapter 37. I'm going to begin reading at verse 5. There will be a place I'll skip, but I'll tell you so that you can follow me. And I believe that uh, Matt's also going to put it on the screen. If you are following me in a more contemporary translation, I, I'm going to read from King James this morning. I'm not hung up on it, by the way. You don't have to have a King James Bible to go to heaven. <laughs> One will be given you when you get there. <laughs> But why stand in that long, embarrassing line? <laughs> I, I'm just teasing. You know, I'm always afraid somebody will take, amen, brother, amen. No, I, uh, I'm not hung up on it, which translation. The kids at the universities, I, I spent about 16 years, as your pastor mentioned, as the president of two different universities. And the kids always used to ask me, President, well, then why do you always read from the King James Bible? I said, well, part of it was loyalty. I went to high school with King James. Um, <laughs> Jimmy, you know, we, he wasn't a king in high school. We called him Jimmy. The other part is the, the flowery Shakespearean language of the King James Bible that offends everybody else appeals to my theatrical heart. I, I like all the these and thous. I just can't get used to Jesus coming down to the Sea of Galilee and greeting the disciples, satin dudes. It's just me. So I'm going to read from King James this morning, but you feel free to follow me in whatever cheap communist imitation you've got. <laughs> it's nice to be in a church that'll laugh. You should travel with me. You should see some of the churches where I preach and laughter has never touched this face. <laughs> so it must, every good thing in a church culture flows from the top down. So your pastor must be a pastor who gives you permission to laugh. And that's wonderful. Genesis 37 and verse 5. And Joseph dreamed a dream and he told it to his brethren and they hated him yet the more. And he said unto them, Here I pray you this dream which I have dreamed. For behold, we were binding sheaves in the field. And lo, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves stood round about and made obeisance to my sheaf. Look at the word, to make obeisance. That is, um, that is an antiquated English word. It means to bow, but when you say bow, as you have on the screen there, when you see bow, it doesn't imply any emotion. It's just an action verb. But to make obeisance means to bow reverentially as in the presence of a high official. And when his brethren, let's see, let's go to uh, verse 7. For behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and lo, my sheaf arose and stood upright, and behold, your sheaves stood round about and made obeisance to my sheaf. And his brethren said unto him, Shalt thou indeed reign over us, or shalt thou indeed have dominion over us? And they hated him yet the more for his dreams and for his words. And he dreamed yet another dream and told it to his brethren. 
and said, Behold, I have dreamed a dream more, and behold, the sun and the moon and the eleven stars made obeisance to me. And he told it to his father and his brethren, and his father rebuked him and said unto him, What is this dream that thou hast dreamed? Shall I and thy mother and thy brethren indeed come to bow down ourselves to thee to the earth? Now pause and look at this. Joseph does not interpret his own dream. He only records it. He only reports it. He says, look, the sun and the moon and the 11 stars bowed down. It is his father who interprets the dream. The dream stands for his father. Uh, the, the sun stands for his father. The moon for his mother. The stars for his brothers. Now make a note of this. Those who hate your dream and oppose it may understand its implications better than you do. Verse 11, and his brethren envied him, but his father observed the saying. Skip now to verse 18. And when they saw him afar off, even before he came near unto them, they conspired against him to slay him. And they said one to another, behold, this dreamer cometh. Come now, therefore, and let us slay him and cast him into some pit. And we will say some evil beast hath devoured him. And then we shall see what will become of his dreams. Put your hand on your Bible and let's pray together. Heavenly Father, with our hands upon the word and our hearts and minds as open as we know how to get them, we're asking you to do all the rest. Come Holy Spirit. Brush aside every barrier to divine communication. Speak to us deep within so that when we leave here today, we will say, surely, we have heard from the Lord. In Jesus' mighty name, the strong Son of God, amen. Amen and amen. Less than 50 years ago, a young Baptist preacher stood on the steps of an American landmark memorial and preached a sermon that was to transform American culture. Not only law, but relationship culture. The culture in this room was largely transformed because of the sermon that Dr. King preached that day. And all he said really was, I have a dream. There is something about dreams that are transformative. There's a power in a dream. It draws to it resources and energy and life. People want to invest in dreams. They want to give to dreams. They want to be a part of it. They want to follow leaders with dreams. Dr. King's dream was transformative. The way we think about each other in this very room, in this very town, is largely a result of a man who simply said, I have a dream. There is something about a dream that longs to find expression. We can think about it, we can fantasize about it, but at some point or another, we want to express it. I remember some years ago when I was the president at ORU, I was coming through the dining hall and I saw a young girl, one of the co-eds, sitting at a table all by herself and she had a sheet of paper and she was just writing on it. One name, she kept writing this name over and over and over again, down one side and she started the other side. And I was, my curiosity got the better of me. I just stopped and said, young lady, what are you doing? She said, oh, President Rutland, I'm getting married this summer. This is my new name. I'm practicing writing it. 
But her dream at that moment was precious to her. She wanted to talk about it. She wanted to write it and express it. However, remember, dreams also draw opposition. Dr. King's dream changed America, but it also got him murdered, shot dead off of a motel balcony in Memphis, Tennessee. You have to share your dream. You need to share your dream, but you need to understand two things. One is that there is a risk because Satan hates your God-given dream, and he will raise up opposition often from sources that are absolutely make no sense. Joseph's own family opposed his dream with murderous rage. I learned that you have to be careful with whom you share your dream. I was a Methodist minister very young uh, when I was in my 20s, right at the end of the Civil War. And <laughs> it's rude to laugh at me. And um, when I was 28, I re as a Methodist minister, I've been in the ministry nearly seven years, when I received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And it changed everything. I was a Methodist. I didn't grow up in Pentecost. I didn't know about all this. It was very formal, shallow water, high steeple, liturgical Methodism. And I received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It, it blew all that out of the water. I had to start completely over. But among all the things that happened, God gave me a fresh dream for ministry. When I went into the ministry, I felt called by the Lord as a teenager to be a minister. But to me, in the Methodist church, I'd never been to any other kind of church but a Methodist church. So when I thought of the ministry, the only thing I knew was to be a Methodist pastor. I didn't know there was any other way. I didn't know any of you people were out here. And... I became a Methodist minister when I received the baptism of the Spirit. One of the things that happened was I received a fresh and different dream of ministry. I could see it as clearly as I can see you. But I didn't even have the vocabulary for it. I didn't know what to call it. I saw myself traveling from country to country and continent to continent preaching in little tiny villages and in the jungle and the forest and at great churches. And I, I saw myself in all kinds of settings building churches. Now I know it's called a missionary evangelist. But I didn't even have a name for it. But it was in me. I share it with my wife and we talk about it. Finally, I was invited to be on a committee with some other Methodist ministers. I was appointed to this committee by the bishop, and so I went to the committee meeting. I was by far the youngest guy there. I was, as I say, in my late 20s. They were all very elderly men, way up in their early 40s. And, you know, when you're in your 20s, somebody in their 40s looks like they're ready for the nursing home. And, and so I kept my mouth shut. I was intimidated by these old guys. And we went through the whole meeting. I never said a word. When it got finished, we finished early. And the chairman of the committee said, hey, we're finished early. Does anybody have anything they'd like to share? And it seemed like the propitious moment. So I put my hot little hand in the air and said, I do. And I told them my newfound dream. And I found why Jesus said, do not pour your pearls out before swine. Because that room full of pigs turned on me. <laughs> they trampled my dream and they began to rend me. 
They blasted me. They said, that is the stupidest thing that we've ever heard of. They said, nobody wants that old time. And they told me what it was. They said, nobody wants that old timey missionary evangelism. That went out with Dwight L. Moody. That's finished. They said, you're a rising star in the Methodist church. You've got an earned doctorate. You're about to flush the whole thing right down the tubes. You'll walk off into Africa. No one will ever hear from Mark Rutland again. I was not so arrogant at 28 as to think I knew everything. These were old guys. They were supposed to know stuff. It suddenly caved in on me. Maybe they're right. Maybe I'm about to make the stupidest mistake. Maybe this is not from God at all. I literally staggered out of that meeting to the parking lot. I got out to my car and put my forearm up on the roof of the car and laid my head over on and I was just thinking, maybe this is a, a horrible mistake. Suddenly, there was an audible voice behind me. I thought it was God. It nearly scared the liver out of me. I spun around, and there was a man standing there, the only man in the room that had not said anything. And he followed me out to the parking lot. And he said, forget them, son. Forget me. Forget this whole meeting. If God has spoken to you, whatsoever he saith unto thee, do it. Forget them. I said, what's wrong with those guys? He said, they've all lost their dream. And they hate you for reminding them of it. They said, they see how excited you were about your dream. And they envy you and they despise it. He said, you know that big guy in there that hammered you the hardest? I said, yes. He seemed so angry. He said, he's furious. He said, I've known him. We went to elementary school together. And I remember when we went to Camp Glisten Methodist Youth Camp. And I remember the night he stood up and testified that God had called him to be a missionary evangelist. And he never tried it. He never ran a risk. He played it safe. Now he hates you for reminding him of it. Now he said, forget him. Forget all those guys. Forget me. And get on with it. For the next 40 years, I've tried to do exactly that, except for one thing. I tried to forget those guys. I tried to forget everything except one thing. I never forgot that man because he was the voice of encouragement that I needed right at that moment. He convinced me I want to be a dream encourager. I, I want to believe in other people's dreams. I want to tell you about the greatest dream encourager of my life. I grew, up, I grew up in a very odd family. I see a lot of young people here. I prophesy to you that when you're my age, you'll realize how odd your family was. <laughs> but my family was very unusual. Um, we moved constantly. I went to uh, four schools in the first grade, and I went to 25 schools before I graduated from high school. People used to ask me, what does your dad do for a living? I said, move. Um, <laughs> we were never unemployed. We didn't live out of the boot of a car or anything, but, but um, we were frequently employed. My dad would hear about a job in California and make a phone call, and he was always hired. We'd move. Sometimes we just lived in the town Six or eight weeks, we'd live in a motel sometimes and move, and I'd just go to whatever school was nearby. It was constant. We just moved all the time. There, there was an upside to it. <laughs> I never wrote a term paper. 
teacher would say, this will be due at the end of the semester. I said, I'm out of here. <laughs> I literally, literally, I would be, come home from school and there would be a moving van in my front yard. I well, where are we moving? I, sometimes I was in class. Somebody would come to the door with a note, say, Mark Rutland, report to the principal's office. The boy next to me would say, ooh, you're in trouble. I'd say, no, we're moving. <laughs> I've literally been taken out of class, get in my car and drive off with my parents. In the fifth grade, we moved to a tiny, rough little town in this very state. And it was the first time I'd ever lived in Florida. It was a rough little town, very small, very um, lower socioeconomic level. And I felt out of place culturally and lonely. I was always the new kid in every school I ever went to. And I was uh, small for my age. I know when you look at this massive and chiseled frame now, <laughs> you really are rude people. Um, but uh, it was a first grade through eighth grade all in one building. The big kids picked on the little kids. It was fistfights in the school. I felt out of place. The one bright spot was my fifth grade teacher. She was not particularly well educated. She taught me a mispronunciation for Mesopotamia that was to haunt me later in life. When I was at the University of Maryland as a student and I referred in a classroom to the Fertile Crescent as Mesopotamia, <laughs> It was an awkward moment, but one for which I have forgiven her in the light of her greater good. She was a little fat lady that just loved fifth graders. She believed in us, and she had one educational tactic that I wish every teacher in America would adopt. Every first Monday, she would lean over the desk and rub her chubby little fingers together and twinkle her blue eyes mischievously, and she'd say, well, it's dream day. Yay, we all love dream day. We'd pull our little desks into a semicircle, and she would talk to us about our dreams one by one by one. If it took all day, and often it did, she would process our dreams. What is your dream? She'd talk about it. She had two rules. One was you had to have a dream. Nobody could sit it out. And you could change every month, which a lot of kids did, but you had to have a dream. The other rule was you could not laugh at anybody else's dream. If you even, if you even smirked, you had to stand in the hall the next month during dream day, and nobody wanted to miss dream day. And she acted like each dream from each child was totally rational. Sometimes they seemed crazy to me, but she acted, Mrs. Burkett acted like it was the most rational thing in the world. She turned to Dalton Tull. He's a dangerous hulk. We were all terrified of him. He was 35 in the fifth grade. And she said, Dalton, what's your dream? He said, I want to be an astronaut. I remember thinking, if Dalton Tull goes into space, it'll be with the chimpanzees. But Mrs. Burkett acted like it was the most rational thing she'd ever heard. She said, oh, Dalton, won't that be exciting for me? When I'm sitting on my couch watching the television and it says Colonel Dalton Tull, NASA, United States Air Force, he's climbing into the nose cone of his spaceship. Wait a minute. He wants to make an announcement and you'll raise the visor on your space helmet and say, I dedicate this flight to Mrs. Burkett 
and all the students in 5A. And we all cheered. And I can remember thinking, this imbecile's going to do this. <laughs> then she turned to little Maisie Blanchard, little dishwater blonde from a family so poor that she wore the same faded print dress to school every day of the fifth grade. She just wash it at night, wear it the next day. The only shoes I ever saw her wear were Big Brother's cast off tennis shoes. She said, Maisie, what's your dream? Maisie said, I want to be a movie star. Mrs. Burkett said, oh, Maisie, think how exciting that'll be for me. I'll go to the movies and I'll sit in the dark theater and the lion will roar. And then the credits will say, starring Maisie Blanchard. She said, I'll turn to the other people in the theater and say, you may not know this. I taught Maisie Blanchard in the fifth grade. She made that child look different to me. I thought, wow, Maisie's going to be rich and famous someday. I'm going to be nice to her. <laughs> I don't know if Mrs. Burkett was a Christian. I wasn't. My family wasn't. So I don't know what she believed about the eyes of faith or speaking things into existence or whatever. I just know that when she processed our dreams, she made us believe in each other. And she made us believe in ourselves. And then she said, now here's the new boy. I said, well, I know who that is. <laughs> I was 16 before I knew I had a name. <laughs> I thought my name was new boy. She said, here's the new boy. Mark, what's your dream? As far as I know, no one had ever asked me that. As far as I know, I'd never formulated the thought in my own mind. So I was shocked when an answer erupted out of me with volcanic force. I never hesitated. I said, I want to write books. As Soon as I said it, and all the other boys in the class, their dreams are FBI agent and United States Marine and cowboy. My dream sounded so prissy. I just glared around the room and said, just laugh, dream this. <laughs> but Mrs. Burkett took that dream up in her hands and she breathed the breath of life on it. She said, oh, Mark, that's going to happen. She said, someday I'll go into a bookstore and I'll buy a book by Mark Rutland and I'll tell the lady at the cash register I taught Mark Rutland in the fifth grade. I don't know what happened in any of those other kids. I don't know if Dalton ever did go into space even after he got out of prison. I don't know. <laughs> I never saw a movie with Maisie Blanchard in it. I don't know. What I do know is something happened in me. I felt something click inside me. It was as though that had already happened, and I cherished it for the rest of my life. Last year, my 19th book was published. Hundreds of thousands of copies sold of 19 books worldwide. And I do not believe I would have ever written the first word of the first page of the first book if it hadn't been for a little fat lady that couldn't pronounce Mesopotamia. <laughs> she was the dream encourager that I wanted and needed at that moment in my strange family life. She made me believe in myself. That made me want to be that in the lives of others. When I became a university president, 
I was surrounded by young adults. You're constantly surrounded. And I love the little brats. Um, I mean, our beloved students. And, and I wanted to encourage their dreams. They're, they're having a dream a minute. And I wanted to encourage them. And I'd talk about it and share with them. Sometimes it was difficult. I'll be honest. Some kid rushes up to me on the quadrangle. President Rutland. You're always talking about dreams. Let me, let me share my dream. I said, great, son. What is it? He said, I want to I wanna play professional basketball. I want to be in the NBA. And I wanted to say, son, you're 5'4 and you're white. Have you thought about the theater club? <laughs> We have a killer debate team here. But you know what? I decided that's not my job. That's not my job. Let life kick his dream in the mouth. I'm, I'm going to be the one that he remembers as an encourager. So I'd say, go for it, man. Go for it and learn to jump. Because you're going to need some altitude. Why, why would I do that? Well, Part of it is, I don't know who that kid is. I don't know. What if he becomes the first 5'4 white guy to play in the NBA? When he writes his autobiography, I want it dedicated to me. <laughs> the second thing is, I, I don't know where that dream is going to go. That's how it looks to him in college. So it's not my job to discourage. I've got a word for the adults in the room, for the parents and grandparents and youth pastors, and don't rain on anybody else's dream parade. Don't be Joseph's family. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel is the dispenser of dreams. And he's looking for somebody somewhere that will encourage people's dreams, that will do what Mrs. Burkett did, that will shine the light of faith on those dreams. I know what you're worried about. You say, oh, life will disappoint them. Their dream will blow up in their faces. Yes, but they grow and mature and they come to the place where they can handle that at that time. Right now, what they need is somebody to just say, go for it and learn to jump. <laughs> the second thing is this. Your dream may not look exactly like how it appeared to you at the beginning. Remember, I don't think for one moment that Joseph said to himself when he received that dream in his father's tents, that he said, the sun and the moon and the 11 stars are going to all bow down in heaven to me. I don't think he said there are going to be these sheaves of wheat standing in a field and all these other sheaves will bow down and make obeisance and my sheaf will stand upright. That it was a symbol it was a concept. God reveals dreams to us symbolically. And therefore, as we get closer to the fulfillment of the dream, the dream may not look exactly like what we thought. And, and many people, their dream comes true. They have it in the palm of their hands and they can't recognize it because it doesn't look like how it first appeared to them. 
Imagine when Joseph's family came to Egypt years later and bowed down before Joseph as an Egyptian prince. If Joseph would have said, no, this is not it. There's no moon and there's no stars. No, it, God reveals your dream at the beginning in pictures. And that may not be exactly, it may not look exactly like what you thought. When I was uh, in India, I went to speak at a, at a boy's home. And there was an elderly lady that ran that boy's home. She was a sweet old lady, but she had a, a horrible disfiguring scar on the left side of her face. It was like a big thick red hand, and it pulled her eyes and her mouth this way. She told me that when she was a little girl, she had pulled a Coleman lantern off a high shelf and it exploded on the side of her face and disfigured her with a burn. A village family with no means. There was not really any way to deal with that. And frankly, I'm not sure looking at her what plastic surgery ever could have done. She said that... Um, her mother was a tough woman. She had lived a tough life. She was hurt by life. And hurt people hurt people. She said to her daughter, you're ugly. No man is ever going to care for you. You better take care of your own life. And that little girl took that to heart. And she began to work hard in school. She made straight A's. She earned a scholarship to college. But all that time, she would have dreams at night, not, not a dream of a concept, but sleeping dreams. And she would dream of holding babies and rocking babies and even babies on the floor around her rocking chair. And she told her mother about these dreams and her mother would say, that's a satanic trick. That's not God. That's a devil. He's, he's tempting you because he knows no man will ever give you a baby. Look in the mirror. No man will ever give you a baby. And she, but she would have the dream. Finally, her mother forbade her, said, do not ever mention that dream to me again. And so she didn't. She went to college. She finished college. She went to New Delhi to the university and earned an MBA. And when she graduated with her MBA, she came back to the village the first night to her mother's house. And that night, she dreamed the dream again of sitting in a rocking chair and rocking a baby and babies on the floor around her. And as they prepared breakfast the next morning, she told her mother about it. And her mother spun around and slapped her and said, I told you not to ever mention that dream again. She said, I stood there with tears streaming down my face. And at that precise moment, the phone rang. She said, I picked the phone up and it was the bishop of the Church of South India, the Madras, it was Madras in those days, the Madras Archdiocese. And he said, I understand you finished your MBA. She said, yes. He said, we have a, a boy's home out in the countryside and the old lady who ran it has passed away. And I'd like for you to go out there with me in the morning and take a look at it. Now she was hurt and hurt people hurt people. She said, Bishop, I am disgusted that you will call me. She said, I'm furious. All the time I was working my way through college in an MBA, the Church of South India didn't give me a penny. Now I graduate with an MBA, and you want to ask me to be the house mother at your run-down little boy's home? He said, Miss, I've miscommunicated. That is not what I've called about. I want to hire you as a consultant. I want to ask you to go out there and look at the home Make a list of all the deferred maintenance, go over the books, see what the financial situation is, and then help us find the new house mother. 
That's all. I want to hire you as a consultant. She said, oh, Bishop, I'm sorry. Of course, I'd love to have that contract. The next morning, the bishop and his driver picked her up. They drove out in the country, pulled into the boy's home. There's a circular drive in front of the main building. They pulled in, and when she stepped out on the building side, she said, that building erupted little boys. She said they poured out of the windows and the doors, and they surrounded her. They were jumping up and down and cheering and cheering, and she said, a little four-year-old ran and threw his arms around my hips and looked up into my face as if he couldn't even see my scar, as if he couldn't even see how ugly I was. And he looked in my face, and he said, are you our new mother? And she said, I turned to tell the bishop I'd like to reconsider about being the house mother. And she said, when I turned, his car was driving out the main gate. <laughs> and she said, I've never seen him again. She said, that day, Dr. Utland, I learned two lessons. She said, the first lesson is this. When God gives you a dream, God will bring it to pass. It may not look like what you thought. It may not look like what you thought, but God will bring it to pass his way in his timing by his supernatural power. She said, I've never known a man, but I've rocked more babies than any woman in India. She said, I have more sons than any woman in India. She said, that little four-year-old is now a physician in Madras that treats my boys for free. She said, I am the mother of a multitude, and I've never been with a man. She said, God will bring your dream to pass. I said, that's the first thing. What's the other thing you learned? Oh, she said, I learned you can trust God. I learned you cannot trust bishops. The dream can come to pass. It can be right in your hand and you miss it because it doesn't look like what you thought. I'll give you another example. When I was in the second grade, another of our family moves, we moved for a season to Arlington, Texas. I went about five or six weeks to an elementary school in the second grade in Arlington, Texas. And when you're moving around frequently, you, you just have to step in. Nobody gives you time to catch up. The rope is turning, and you just have to run in and start jumping. Has anybody else ever moved, even occasionally? And you know, you know what I'm talking about. I see several hands. You, you're always having to figure out what's going on there, and they don't have time to pause everything and explain everything to you. So the second graders at that school were preparing for uh, some kind of a presentation at the PTA meeting that was coming up. And so every morning, first thing, all the second, it was a great big elementary school, all the classes would go into the auditorium and practice some patriotic songs that we were going to sing for the PTA meeting. And I just had to get in on it. So I didn't know any of these songs, and they were all new to me, and nobody explains the lyrics to a child. Children don't hear what you hear. And often the lyrics are confusing. I, I, I'll give you an example. I remember uh, when I was a kid in the Methodist church, we used to sing this hymn. It's a hymn of the church called Gladly the Cross-Eyed Bear. And I couldn't understand that song. I, I didn't know who Gladly was. 
I didn't know why he was cross-eyed. And I didn't understand why we were singing about a bear in church. Gladly the cross-eyed bear. I thought, every time we sang that hymn in church, I always thought, I'm gladly the cross-eyed bear. <laughs> or here's another one. The Christmas song. Am I the only one that's ever struggled with this? Who the fat man was at the nativity? Round John, virgin. Uh, <laughs> am I the only one that ever struggled with that? Ron, John, virgin, mother and child. Why was Round John there? Uh, and why did we sing about him in church? I, I never could get that. So this song we sang had in it the lyrics, you all know, Purple Mountain Majesty. But nobody explained to that little second grader what Purple Mountain Majesty meant. But to my creative heart, Purple Mountain Majesty, that sounded like the most beautiful mountain in the world. Imagine a mountain that is so beautiful they name it Purple Mountain Majesty. Oh God, I thought if I could ever just see Purple Mountain Majesty. Went home from school one day. My dad said, well, you'll not go back to Southside in the morning. We're leaving in the morning for California. I said, California? Are we going through the mountains? He said, we sure are. I said, oh, daddy, are we going to see Purple Mountain Majesty? He said, yep, we are. <laughs> my God, I was wired for sound. I thought my head would explode. The next morning, about an hour west of Fort Worth, my father pulled the car to the side of the road and he said, now listen to me, we're going to California. We're going through the mountains and we're gonna see Purple Mountain Majesty. But if you ask me about it again, you'll not live to see it. <laughs> Finally, one day, my mother said, Mark, look out the windshield. I looked and there against the horizon, OMG, Purple Mountains. God, I thought I would pass out. I said, we're here. We're here. How many of you know that from the first time you can see the Rocky Mountains until you actually arrive at them, it's like days of driving? I thought I would never get there. Finally, we started up into the mountains. And I said, Daddy, are we going to go to the top? He said, yes, we are. I said, Daddy, I, I need to know, are we going to the tip top? He said, we're going to the tip top. I said, Daddy, please don't lie to me. Are we going to the tip, tip top? He said, the tip, tip top. Finally, we pulled into one of those overlooks. You know what I'm talking about? And he said, there, Mark, look. And I said, no. No, you said the tip, tip top. You promised the tip, tip top. He said, this is the tip, tip top, and I'm going to throw you off. I hurled myself in the back seat and burst into tears because that little second grader could not explain to those adults that I had seen Bugs Bunny drive his car to the tip, tip top of mountains that were shaped like pyramids and that his car would rock back and forth. I could just imagine our family car on the pinnacle of Purple Mountain Majesty, <laughs> rocking back and forth until my dad would say, okay, everybody to the front seat. And we'd all get in the front and shoot down the other side, straight into Disneyland. I, I had this fantasy in my mind. There I was in the Rocky Mountains. And I, I couldn't enjoy it because I was fixed 
on a cartoon image that wasn't real to start with. Some people, maybe in this room, you think you've lost your dream and you actually have it because you've never allowed the Holy Spirit to open your eyes. So here's a girl, comes to Tallahassee to go to college, some fine school, we'll just pick one at random, I don't know, FSU, and she majors in drama and theater arts. Her dream is to someday win an Academy Award. But her senior year in college, she has the dreadful misfortune to fall in love with a ministry student. And so she gets married. She puts her dream on ice and goes with him to pastor a, a small country church. They ask her to produce the Christmas pageant, and she does. But that night, everything goes wrong. The scenery falls over, knocks the manger over, a little plastic baby Jesus rolls across the platform. But everybody at the church loves it. They're having a wonderful time. After the service, after the pageant is over, they all go in the fellowship hall for hot chocolate. And she's sitting on the front row feeling sorry for herself. She says, what happened to my dream? What happened to my dream? I put my dream on ice. This is my husband's dream. What happened to my dream? Just at that moment, a little boy with a bath towel wrapped around his head and secured with a rubber band, wearing a bathrobe that's dragging the ground and holding a yardstick, which he used for a shepherd's staff. In his other hand, he's got a dandelion that looks like he chewed on it for a month. And he comes to her at the front row and he says, I've never been in a play before, but tonight... I was a shepherd. And he hands her that battered flower. And he says, here, this is for you. Now she can despise that and go on feeling sorry for herself. Or she can clutch that dandelion to her breast and say, at last, my Academy Award. The next thing is this. The shortest with God... God's geography is not the same as yours. With God, the shortest distance between any two points may not be a straight line. You may feel that God is leading you further and further and further away from your dream until the moment it happens. Look at Joseph. Give this dream in his father's tent. Do you think for one moment he said, I know how this is going to happen. My brothers are going to hate me. They're going to throw me into a pit and tell my father that I was eaten by a lion, but then they'll change their minds, drag me out of the pit, sell me into slavery to a bunch of Ishmaelites that'll take me to Egypt and resell me like a used car. I'll become bought by an Egyptian aristocrat and he'll make me the head of his household until I'm falsely accused of attempted rape. I'll spend years and years in, a, in an Egyptian dungeon for a crime I didn't commit until I'm raised up out of the dungeon to interpret a dream for the Pharaoh and the Pharaoh's dream will come true and he'll make me the second in command to the Pharaoh, the most powerful nation in the world and I'll be the second most powerful man in the world. Meanwhile, a famine will fall on Israel and my family will come to Egypt to beg for grain and coming before me, they will not recognize me, of course, and they'll think that I'm an Egyptian Lord and they will bow and make obeisance. And my dream will be fulfilled. 
Do you think any of that story occurred to Joseph? None of that story occurred to Joseph. Here's what I'm trying to say to you. You may think your dream is getting further and further and further away when actually you may turn around at any given moment and it's there, right there before you. Remember what that old lady in India said. This is important. You can trust God. You can believe God. It may not look like what you thought. The journey between the conception of the dream and the fulfillment of the dream may be longer and more circuitous than you imagined. The dream when it comes to pass may not look like the, f- the fantasy idea, the, the cartoon image that you had, but God will bring it to pass in his own way. It'll look like God's fulfillment of the dream. If you, if you can find the faith to receive the dream and then find the faith to open your eyes and see the dream as it is. Let me, let me bring this to a conclusion. You've been so patient. So people say, I want, a, I want a big dream. I want a big dream. Here's the problem with that statement. I understand what they're saying, but here's the problem. We also don't see dreams the way God does. We don't know what's a big dream and what's a little dream. What if somebody dreams to be the president of the United States? God knows why anybody would dream that. I don't know. Maybe they're just a psychotic moment, not a dream, but I don't know. But suppose somebody dreams of that. We think maybe that's a big dream. We think maybe that's a big dream. And then somebody else says, I want to teach elementary school at an inner city school in downtown Chicago. And we think that's a small little dream. But what if that elementary school teacher becomes the dream encourager that touches a life, that touches a child, that touches a grandchild, that four generations later becomes the greatest inner city urban evangelist that's ever lived? Was that a small dream or a big dream? Do you see what I'm trying to tell you? (laughs) Yes, God has a dream for your life. But... But you can't know what's a big dream and what's a little dream. When you obey God and pursue the dream that he gives you, just the dream that he gives you, let God work out the results, even though you may never see them. Keep believing. A dream delayed in a pit or in a prison is not a dream destroyed. Some of you in this room have dreams that you dreamed a long time ago, and you feel like those dreams have been sidetracked. Remember what I'm telling you. God is not finished yet. Second thing is the dream. Have you opened your eyes to see whether or not the dream is even in your hand? Third, are you willing for God to bring the dream to pass in a way that you can't even see it? But the manifestation of that dream and the results, the effects of that dream may take place in a place that you can't even imagine. You know what that's called? That's called faith. I trust God for the dream. I trust God for the journey. I trust God for the results. And I give God all the glory. What I'd like to do this morning is pray for you. I, I, 
I'm not worthy. I'm not praying for you because I'm better or anything else. I'm not worthy for you to wipe your shoes on. I want to pray for you as your servant. I want to pray for your dream. I want to pray for the dreams that you have for your children or your grandchildren. I want to pray for your dream. I want to pray for the dreams of this church. I, I heard this morning, sometimes you say, well, fixing the plumbing, that's not such a great dream. But that dream, maybe you never know how that dream will make another dream come true. You just do what has to be done. Sometimes the dream doesn't look very fancy. You've got to fix the plumbing. So you fix the plumbing and somehow or another out of that, pastor, may actually come the next thing that you wanted to do anyway and you shouldn't have done until you fixed the plumbing, but you didn't know you had to fix the plumbing until the plumbing was wrecked. This is making sense. Do you understand what I'm saying? This, this same thing can happen with you, you're pursuing a dream and you slam into a wall and you think, oh, my dream is never going to come true. And God says the wall was the wrong direction. I put the wall there, but your dream is not finished. Look behind you. Will you let me pray for you? Bow your head and close your eyes all over the room, if you will. Heavenly Father, I thank you for these precious people, for this church, for this pastor, for the staff, the leadership here. Lord, I pray now that, O oh, thou giver of dreams, that you will grant us faith this morning. Now keep your heads bowed and your eyes closed. If you say, Dr. Rutland, will you please pray for me? I, I have a dream. I know what it is. Somehow or another, that dream just doesn't seem to be moving forward. Maybe I even feel like it's been sidetracked. Will you pray for me that, that God would allow me to recapture my faith for that dream? If that's you, then you lift your hand up right where you are. And I want to pray for you. Sure. One, two, three, five. There's another. Oh, se okay. Several, several, several. Yes, anybody can get discouraged. The dream feels like it's getting further, but it may not be. Heavenly Father, you see their hands raised. You know their dreams. You know the, their name, everything about them. I'm asking God that you will give them faith. Grant them supernatural faith to believe that you who gave the dream also will bring it to pass. God, I pray that you will remove from their lives any obstacles, any dream murderers, and that you will fill their life with dream encouragers and give them supernatural faith. That no matter how long the journey, no matter how great the delay, in a pit or in a prison, that you'll make them to know that the dream is coming forward. Give them faith. Now take your hands down and keep your eyes closed. Others who would say, Dr. Orton, will you pray for me? Please pray for me. I, I'm not sure that I really know what the dream of my life is. Or maybe I have pursued a dream and fulfilled a dream and I need a new dream. If that's you, then I want you to lift your hand up and let me pray for you. Sure, sure, sure. Great, great. Heavenly Father, I thank you. I pray that you, who are the giver of every good and perfect gift, would also give dreams. Awaken in them a dream for their lives. Something that may seem so unattainable, so far out there, that only your supernatural power can bring it to pass. I believe you for it, God. Whether in a sleeping dream or in their imagination of their hearts, that you will grant them a dream for their lives. A new dream, a fresh dream. Lord, I thank you 
I believe you for it. Now, if there everyone here that's under the age of 21, would you raise your hand if I can see where those are that are under the, hold your hand up high if I can see where you are. All right. Will you just do me this favor? Just humble yourself and do this and just come and stand right here in front of me. I want to pray for you. Come on, real quick. It's all right. Come on. Come on, buddy. It's all right. That's right. Come and turn and face me right here. Good, good. The little guy way in the back. Here he comes. Come on. It's okay. Come on, Michael. I know you're under 21. I'm not that old. Come on. Anybody else under the age of 21? All right. Here's the thing. Why praying for you is so awesome. You don't even understand it. The old people here like me, we understand it. The reason that it's so awesome. Come on, come on. The reason is, I don't know who you are. Come on, handsome. You're, you're going to get in on this too. I, anybody else? All right. The thing is, I don't know who you are. I, I don't know who you are. I may be looking at the at the next or not the next one but a future president of AT&T I don't know who you are maybe you're going to be the come what's your name Austin. your name is awesome Austin, Austin. I thought I'd say I don't need to pray over you if your name is awesome <laughs> okay Austin I don't know who you are see for all I know you're the scientist who's going to invent a cure for cancer the thing is, I don't know. I don't know who you are. Maybe you're going to be a great preacher. And you just, you're thinking, this will never happen. The thing is, you don't know who you are either. It's not just that I don't know. You don't know. Because your future has not been fully revealed to you. You may have dreams, ideas, concepts of where you want to be. But your future has not yet been revealed. I'm not going to pray that God will reveal your future. What I'm going to pray is that he'll give you a dream. That he will believe, that he will help you believe that something wonderful can come of your life. Would you like me to pray that? Good. Listen to this. This is hard to believe because you're so wonderful you can't imagine anybody hates you. But listen to Dr. Mark. Satan hates you. He hates you because you look like God. You're made in God's image and he hates you. Therefore, he hates the dream of your life. He's going to do everything he can do to keep that dream from happening. He's going to try to lead you into sin or destruction or bad habits or take you on the wrong tracks. Anything he can do to destroy that dream because Satan hates your dream. But God loves you. God gives you the dream and he loves your dream. So I'm going to pray that God will guide you straight toward that dream. Are you ready? Heavenly Father, I thank you for these precious young people. Touch, oh Lord, each one. May the grace of God, may it fall upon them and surround them. Give them fresh dreams. Make them to know that they are more beautiful, more powerful, and more useful than they have ever thought of or imagined that you have a purpose for their lives and a dream that each one of them is valuable to you and that there is not one single one of them that cannot receive a dream 
will not receive a dream that right now you're touching them to give them a dream for their lives and that they'll follow that dream and pursue it and surrender to it. I claim that for them in the wonderful name, Jesus. Amen. Now, I don't want you to leave. I want you just to back up just a little bit. Back up just a little bit. And I'd like to invite the pastor and his wife and the elders. What do you, you have elders or board members, whatever you call them. If they would come, and we're going to let the young people pray for the old people. So I want all the leaders of the church, if you'll come and stand right in here. Come on. Come right here. Come right here. Come on, guys. Come on the inside. You can humble yourselves and let these young people lay hands on you and pray for you. That you will have dreams and vision and leadership. This church is not finished. There's a reason that this church is here. Now let him come right here. You back up just a little bit. Let's get these folks in here. There's a reason that this church is here. There's a reason that this building is in this place and not a liquor store. What could be here? Anything. There's a reason. There's a reason that you guys are pastoring this church. God's not finished. God has dreams. Now, young people, I want you to reach over and lay your hands on some of these people. Right? Come on. Come forward. Reach over. Put your hands right on their back. That's right. That's right. Come on. All right. And you pray. As I pray aloud, you pray too. Are you ready? Heavenly Father, we pray for the leadership of this church, for the pastor, for his wife, for the elders, for their spouses. I pray, God, that you will give them vision and energy, dreams for this church, dreams for ministry, dreams for their own lives. God, I pray that you will awaken a dynamic new vision for this church, and we believe you for it. Pastor, in the name of Jesus, receive a fresh touch. Elders of the church, in the name of Jesus, receive a fresh touch. The young people are laying hands on you and calling you out to say, lead us higher and further. In Jesus' name, amen, 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 and amen. Well, thank God. Thank God. Thank God. Thank you for listening to the Generations Church Podcast. We hope you enjoyed the message today and pray God's greatest blessings on you. For more information about Generations Church and its ministries, check out our webpage at gctlh.org or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and Twitter.